just agree together and then we'll dive into the word of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for your word. Where would we be tonight without the word of God as our anchor? Lord, we thank you for your precious Holy Spirit. And Lord, I thank you for the heavens being open and your glory in this place. You can just feel the presence of God. And I thank you, Lord, even now for your precious Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit when he comes, he's the comforter, the counselor, that he would lead you into all truth. He would take of what's of the Lord and give it to us. He would even show us things to come, but we need the Holy Spirit. The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit through people. It's infallible because the Holy Spirit oversaw the process. And so, Lord, we thank you tonight for your Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us. Give us good soil of hearts and minds and lives. And as you speak through me, your living, living seeds of truth sown into good soil. Water by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And Lord, we take authority over the enemy. We bind anything that would try to steal the seed. It is bound. It goes from us now in Jesus' name. But I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit just blowing upon this. It'll go out among the nations. It'll get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to. And I thank you, Lord, for your angels that watch over the word. And, and the Bible says it will not return void, but will accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So we thank you for hearing and answering the prayers over this sermon tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've been encouraging people to get a good physical Bible and carry it and use it because I'm telling you there's going to come a day, I don't know when, but the Bible is not going to be as easily accessible through apps and phones and the internet and all of that, I'm just telling you, and you're going to need a good Bible. And so I'm working on getting a Bible uh, put out through our ministry but it is it is an endeavor, and it's going. To, I'm sure it's going to take some time and some finances. Thanks thanks to those that sewn into that as well. But we will we are I'm diligently working on that. All right, so I've been talking about recently the menorah and how the menorah represents the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and the menorah is God's family tree, and that's what God has given us as His family. He's given us His Word and His Spirit. And so as we look into Hanukkah tonight, the festival of lights, but also the feast of dedication. Hanukkah means dedication. Well, as we look at this sermon tonight, you're going to see that same message, the word of God and the spirit of God that we need in our lives. So let me just go ahead and get directly into this. But John chapter 10, verse 22, it says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem, which is Hanukkah. And it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus was simply there celebrating Hanukkah and looking at all the lights that were displayed in Jerusalem. And even this week, there are all these beautiful lights displayed in Jerusalem right now as I'm speaking to you. And so Jesus thought enough of this feast as he did all of them to celebrate it. And I can show you in the word in Zechariah where it's very clear that when Jesus comes, the world, the whole world is going to be keeping these feasts. And it's going to continue on into eternity. Because then when the Father comes, the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, it talks about from new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, people bringing their offerings. And it's something that's eternal. And so I want to teach a little bit about it. Um, Hanukkah begins this, it began this year on December the 7th. It goes for eight days. But let me give you a little bit about it. 
So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the temple of God and how God wants our temple pure. And so first off, what is the temple of the Holy Spirit today? Me and you, okay? And so God's wanting our temple to be holy ground, to be really pure, that we keep our temple pure. But also, the Bible says we as living stones, when we come together, we build like a dwelling place for God. So there's like a corporate temple like tonight, where the Holy Spirit dwells. And God wants this temple holy. Amen? And so I'm going to show you something tonight about the temple and the consecration that I'm concerned. Things are not necessarily where they need to be in the body of Christ right now, but one of the reasons is because of a hyper-grace type of message. You can focus too much on any message. I love the grace of God just as much as anybody else, and we all need God's grace. I mean, we're not going to get in heaven without God's grace, amen? But at the same time, if that's what you focus all the time on, and people people need to focus also on the fact that we need to repent of our sin, and we need to live holy too, amen? And so there's been this hyper-grace message that has neglected deep repentance and purifying our lives, purifying God's house, that has put the body of Christ in danger and vulnerable. And I'm going to show you this in the Word. So in 2 Kings 23, verse 4, God had, put on, God had spoken to Moses to build the tabernacle, and later that became Solomon's temple. How many knows God wanted the temple to be holy because that's where his presence dwell? And he commanded all of us, you know, those before Christ and those after the cross, that to be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And God wanted his presence there, but if it became an unholy, ungodly, defiled place, the presence of God would leave. And I'm going to show you that how unfaithful God's people were in the fact that they allowed such evil to come into the temple of God. So 2 Kings 23, verse 4, the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priest of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring, listen to this, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the utensils that had been made for Baal and Asherah. And for the heavenly lights, which are the stars, because they were worshiping and, you know, looking to the stars like astrology. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley. Now, the Kidron Valley was a place where all the, like the refuge was, or a refuse rather. It was just a place to dump all the junk, everything unclean, all the idols, all the filth was dumped there. And he carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he did away with all the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, as well as those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, to the remaining heavenly lights. He also brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. Can you believe that God's people at this time had the audacity to bring inside the temple utensils and different types of worship to Baal and Asherah inside the temple. To where the king had to come in and command that they purge that temple of that garbage. Now let me show you in Ezekiel verse eight or chapter 8 verse 1. Ezekiel was a powerful prophet and he was alive right before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed you know, the temple and all that. But it says this, now it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in the house, 
in my house rather with the elders of Judah sitting before me. The hand of the Lord was upon me there and I looked and behold something like the appearance of a man from his waist downward was the appearance of fire and from his waist upward the appearance of a glow like a gleaming of metal. How many knows this is an angel? Okay. And the angel here extended the form of his hand and took me by the hair of the head and the spirit of God lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in a vision of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate, to the inner courtyard where the seat of the, look at this, the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy was located. Again, you see idols in the house of God and Behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw on the plain. And he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. So picture this for a moment. In the temple, God's glory was there. God's presence was there, just like he's in this place tonight. You don't see this with your physical eye, although sometimes the glory may show up as a cloud or fire and you may see it. But the presence of God is here. And Ezekiel saw God's glory in the temple, but at the same time, they put an idol in the temple. And people were bowing down and worshiping this idol. And God said to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here. So that I would, look at this, so that I would be far from my sanctuary. How many want God near to his sanctuary? How many want to be able to come in here and feel God's presence? I'm going to show you why God isn't everywhere as far as his manifest presence. I know people quote the scripture. He's everywhere everywhere as far as he knows all things and he sees all things. But his manifest presence is not everywhere. But then he goes on to say, but yet you will see greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the courtyard. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and behold an entrance. Then he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they're committing here. So I entered and looked and behold every form of crawling things and animals and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved in the wall all around. Now, you guys have seen in Egypt like the hieroglyphs and stuff. So when Solomon built this temple, on the inside of the temple, it was overlaid with pure gold in the walls. I mean, it was beautiful. And you had the table of showbread and Solomon had several different menorah. But they had gone in there, these priests, and they have carved into the wall different types of things that they would worship. Just like in Egypt had the hieroglyphs painted on the walls or whatever. It was like that. And so it wasn't enough that they had a big idol in the courtyard. Now they're carving this in the holy place. And it says, um, and standing in front of them, Look at, listen to this, the 70 elders of the house of Israel and the, uh, Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each of them with a censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of the incense rising. And he said to me, do you see, son of man, what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each man in the rooms of his carved images? For they say the Lord does not see us and the Lord has abandoned the land. And he said to me, yet you will see even greater abominations than this. So they're burning incense instead of, you you guys know enough about the temple that the priests were supposed to to go in every evening, every morning and burn incense to God and worship and pray to him. They weren't doing that. All these 
elders were in there burning incense to their idols that they worship. And he goes on to say, Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, the women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, many may not know, so let me explain. So an ancient leader who was a picture and type of the Antichrist was named Nimrod back in the ancient times in Samaria and ancient Babylon. Okay, there was an evil ruler named Nimrod. Can we turn that up a little bit? It's a little cold. And Nimrod was a picture and type of the Antichrist. He was an evil man. And he had a wife named Semiramis. Now, Nimrod was a great idolater and a great occultist. And whenever he uh, died, his wife Semiramis was pregnant with Tammuz. And she was claiming that when I give birth to this child, this is Nimrod reincarnated and the people were weeping. Now, why is this of any significance? Because the Lord told Adam and Eve that he was going to bring the Messiah through the seed of the woman. How many knows the devil's always got some weird counterfeit? He wants to muddy the waters with some weird deception. And he had this evil Nimrod and his wife bringing forth some type of a false Messiah. And instead of these people being at the temple, praying for God himself to send the true Messiah, they're weeping for Tammuz. This is a false Messiah. In a sense, they were weeping and crying out, if you will, for God to send the Antichrist. And then he said to me, do you see, son of man, yet you will see uh, greater greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, while their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. Why is this significant? Because whenever God had Moses build the tabernacle, For you to go to the tabernacle, the entrance was in the east. So you had, listen, they came out of Egypt, which was a place full of idolatry and paganism. And one of the things the Egyptians worshipped was the sun. And when they came to the Lord's house under Moses, they literally turned their back to the sun worship and they looked toward the tabernacle. These people were turning their backs on God and they were prostrating themselves and worshipping the sun. And he said to me, do you see this, son of man? Is it a trivial thing that the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here? That they have, not only that, but he says they have also filled the entire land with violence and bloodshed. And they have provoked me to anger repeatedly. And what people need to understand, if you can look this way and listen to what I'm saying. Because of these abominations in the house of God and they did not repent. Instead of me reading all this, I want to just tell it. But Ezekiel saw later and he wrote about it that he saw the temple and he saw the Lord, his glory in the temple. And the Lord's glory lifted up above the temple. And nobody said anything. It was almost like the Lord was wanting somebody to ask him, please don't leave. And then the the glory began to move away from the temple and stopped. Again, nobody said anything. And then the glory completely eventually departed. God wanted Israel to recognize the fact that he was leaving. It reminded me of the story of Samson a little bit, that Samson kept defiling himself over and over. I mean, the guy, anyway, he was anointed. God's hand was on him. Yep, he, he kept 
defiling himself. And the Bible says one day the Spirit of God completely left Samson and he didn't even know it. And then he got defeated by his enemies. Well, here's what happened. When the glory of God left the temple, it was after that that Nebuchadnezzar came in and I mean destroyed uh, Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried off all the sacred images to Babylon. Why is that significant? Because how many knows the glory of the Lord is our protection? The Bible says in Isaiah, the glory will be a defense. And if people keep messing around and they allow their personal temple, and I would submit to you your, your personal home, and I would say also a corporate body, a church, to be defiled with various idolatry and pagan things, occult, occult stuff, sexual immorality, bloodshed, and people are having abortions in the church, whatever, and they want to defile God's house, I promise you God's going to leave that house if people don't repent. And when God leaves and the lampstand is removed, darkness is going to come in and the enemy is going to begin to bring death and destruction. So the first thing I want to talk about, about Hanukkah, is us consecrating our temple unto God, which I'm going to tell the story here in a moment. But without belaboring the point right now, a deep consecration, Jesus, do you remember when Jesus walked the earth and he he took and um, he made out of cords, he made a whip, and what did he do? He drove out the money changers out of the temple turned over their tables, you know, he's letting loose the animals, and he drove them out forcefully. What a lot of people don't know is, is if you study this, Jesus didn't just do that one time. He did that the first year of his ministry, and then it's written in the Bible that he did it the last year of his ministry. And I think maybe he did it all three years, but it it only mentions the first and last year. Why did Jesus do it? Because at Passover... Uh, there's this concept uh, called Bedikit Chametz, which means to purge the yeast out. And so you go through your house, you purge the yeast. Yeast speaks of sin. What Jesus was doing right before Passover, catch this, was he was purging the sin out of his father's house. Now here's what's interesting about that. When Jesus drove out the sin out of the temple, then you read about him coming into the temple and performing miracles. The Lord has to clean house first, and then revival comes. Is everybody following me tonight? All right, and then another concept here at Hanukkah is the oil and the fire of revival. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the church is to be a corporate temple that hosts God's presence. As I've said, our church is like a menorah. And what is a menorah filled with? Fresh oil and fresh fire. There is a baptism in fire. I remember one of the stories that came out of one of the powerful revivals in the 90s. There was a young lady that was just, she was mean, she was hateful. Her family was Christian, but there was something about her that there was just an iniquity in her. And she tells her story, and she's very open about this. She was a mean, hateful person. And even though other people in her family would go to church and worship, she just was not interested in God or anything to do with God. And when revival broke out in this place, her sister took her down there and she was just standing there. But eventually she got prayer 
and fell under the power of God and she had an encounter with the Lord. And after God really broke through in her life, she was a completely different human being. She was so different that her family said that they, they had to kind of get to know the new person. She was a completely different person. She went from being mean and hateful to such a loving person. And she changed her name and later on married into uh, the ministry. But my point is this, that there is a baptism of fire that will change you. Jesus, it says about Jesus in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That baptism of fire will purge you from things. All of a sudden, when that baptism of fire comes, you think different, you speak different, you feel different, your motives are different. What you live for is different. Everything about you is going to change, but it's not going to be something you can muster up. It's something that's the fire of God coming into your life. And that's another concept here with um, Hanukkah is that the miracle oil and the fire of God. We need a baptism in fire Well, God will begin to do what he needs to do to clean house. And one of the things I talk a lot about is the five major offerings that took place in the temple. One of them is the burnt offering. In the burnt offering, they would take the animal, they would skin it, they would cut it into five pieces, put it there, and it would literally burn the complete offering. You know what that is for us? The removal of the flesh out of our lives. And we lay our lives on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, saying, God, burn out of me whatever you got to burn out of me. We all need to be brutally honest And if we see that there's something hindering us, we see that we're not where we need to be, we see there's things that are not right, whatever that is for each and every one of us, we need to lay our lives on the altar and say, God, don't leave me like I am. Send your fire and burn it out of me and change me. So the story of Hanukkah goes like this. Antiochus IV, after Alexander the Great died young, He left his kingdom to his four rulers. The one that was in the Middle East, this was the Seleucid Empire, if I remember right. And he was always at war with the south, Ptolemy, over Egypt. But what happened was, eventually, this man by the name of Antiochus IV came to power in the Middle East. And he wanted to rule all the Middle East, and he wanted to conquer the other um, you know, like Ptolemy in the south, etc. He basically wanted to conquer the world. And he gave himself the name Epiphanes, like he's the illustrious one, like a godlike. So here's the interesting thing. Nimrod was a picture and type of the Antichrist who lived in ancient Babylon. And he was somebody that wanted to be worshipped as God. So he was like an Antichrist, if you will. And then later, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, He felt that he needed to be worshipped like God. And so this story of Hanukkah speaks of the coming Antichrist eventually that will come and sit himself in the temple. And you'll see that. Those that know prophecy, as I read this, you're going to see that. So Antiochus, he was a Greek ruler over the area of Syria and all all the Middle East. He wanted to conquer Israel fully and sought to do do away with all God's word and culture. So what he was doing was he wanted to conquer Israel and he wanted to purge Israel from anything to do with God and just simply make them Greek and they're going to worship Greek gods. 
If he was successful in doing this, it would have destroyed the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ. There had to be an Israel for Jesus to come to. There had to be a Jerusalem. There had to be a temple. And he was trying to do away with this culture altogether. How many knows that Antichrist spirit is an anti-Semitic spirit? And it's still at work today. And you see that even right now in the war that's going on with Israel. There is a spirit of the enemy that is wanting to destroy Israel. Why? It really doesn't have as much to do with Israel as what you think. He's trying to stop the coming of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus comes, he's coming to Jerusalem and to sit on David's throne. And Satan knows that. And he's trying to do everything he can to destroy, just like he did in this story. And so Antiochus went through, and he began to make it illegal. At this time, this was what God was doing in the earth. This was 167 years before Jesus. And so this was the will of God and what God was doing. And he was trying to prevent them from circumcising their children as it was supposed to be happening. They couldn't observe the Sabbath. They were forbidden for for celebrating the feast. They could not keep a kosher diet. They could not study the Bible, the Torah, and they could not go to church, the synagogue. He was doing everything he could to destroy any of the culture that God himself had established. He was successful at temporarily stopping the temple rituals and erecting a statue of Zeus, a Greek god, in the... Does this sound familiar to anybody? I've already read these stories in the Bible. He built a, an idol to Zeus and put it right there in the temple. And deliberately wanting to defile the temple, he, he sacrificed a pig on the bronze altar. And as he, as he burned the thing, he put some of the broth, if you will, and he began to pour it over everything. He wanted to completely defile the temple. He erected shrines. He went through the land and sent his little emissaries out to erect shrines and altars to Greek gods. Now, here's the warning for you and I. The people were forced to offer sacrifices as tokens of their acceptance of this new pagan religion. And here's the warning. Some Jews were fine with the transition. I see that today. There is worldliness among Christians. And they're okay with it in some places. But God always has a remnant. Amen? And so there were many Jews that were deeply troubled and stayed totally devoted to God. But because they would not go along with the trend, those that were disobedient to the Greeks were either tortured or killed or both. Many that were tortured, their bodies mutilated. While they were still alive and breathing, they were crucified. Some of the wives that their sons that they had circumcised were strangled to death. Others were crucified with the dead bodies of their children made to hang around their necks. In fact, many believe that in Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about the martyrs, that God was not only speaking of those you may think of, but he was also speaking of these that were faithful to God unto death during this time. Some Bible scholars believe that um, that this is what it was speaking of. And so around 167 uh, before Christ, okay, eight, uh, B.C. 167, this was taking place. And it says, as I read this, Epiphanes had been successful in a long, if he, I'm sorry, if he had been successful in a long-term extinguishing all of this, man, it would have hindered the purposes of God. So God had to intervene. 
And it reminds me of the story of when Jesus was born, something great of great significance here happening. The kings of the east or the wise men of the east, they began to recognize that star. And what did Herod do? He tried to kill Jesus by killing all those babies. In the same way, I believe there was something of Satan that knew that something significant was about to happen. It's like he somehow knew, and he was trying to, before Jesus Christ came to the earth, he was trying to destroy all of that culture and hinder the coming of Christ. So during this time, the Hasmonean dynasty, there was a group of faithful priests unto God. And those that know the Bible remember that Aaron and his sons and his descendants were the priests of God. And so there was a, alive at this time faithful priest that loved God and served God with all their heart. And the king, remember, Antiochus sent representatives throughout the land. Well, they ended up in the land, the area called Moadin, and there was to be a sacrifice there to the Greek gods. And so a priestly leader that everybody respected, named Metahias. They, The Greek leaders that were there, that had the altar, they wanted Metahias to come forth and to offer a sacrifice as a pledge of allegiance to the Greek king. And he stated this, and this is what began the whole revolt. Far be it from us to desert the law or the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion either to the right or the left. Did y'all hear that? How many have the courage in a culture like this? And let me just stop for a minute and say, those of us that are my age or so, it's hard for me to explain this to some of the kids. Because to them, they think this is normal. This Things have changed. Things have changed big time since I was a kid. This is not the same America I grew up in. They don't understand that because they're just kids. They didn't see how it used to be. When I was a kid, I mean, if you, you know, you had a disagreement about something, it wasn't that big of a deal. You used to agree to disagree. I mean, you still got along. Now, if you don't agree with people's agenda, they start calling you all kinds of names. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of vitriol. I mean, it's nasty. And there's satanic agendas. And I mean, it's almost like they really want to force people. Like, for example, ministers, they keep on and on. But why aren't churches saying something? Why aren't preachers saying something? So finally... You know, people like myself will get up and say something, and then what? They get mad because we said something. It's like they're trying to force people to say something, and then they force you into some kind of a category. The The battle lines are drawn, and it's like there's some kind of a spiritual influence in America trying to cause more and more hatred and division. But during this time when all kinds of this darkness, as the Bible said, perilous times that are upon us, Mattahias is an example for all of us. This Maccabee, if you will, stood up and said this in front of everybody there. I mean, these people, understand, these people that he was standing up to had tortured and killed countless other people. And he knew about it. And he said, far be it from us to desert the law and its ordinances. We will not obey the king's words. By turning to side from our religion, neither to the right or the left. And now another Jew came forward and was willing to offer a sacrifice. Mattahias, how many remember the story of Phineas in the Bible? The plague broke out and Phineas was the grandson to Aaron. And there was a guy there that had brought a Midianite woman right there. 
in front of Moses and all them was going to bring him into his tent with sexual immorality and, and worshiping idols. And Phineas burned with the zeal of God, took a spear and ran at the guy and drove the spear through him and the woman. And because of that zeal, God saw it and it actually stopped the plague. 24,000 died, but many others could have died if it wasn't for Phineas' zeal. This was an ancient ancestor to Metahias. And I think Metahias had that same zeal in him. And because that other guy came forward and was going to do this, he killed him on the spot, which the law of Moses commands that you actually do. It was a capital crime to do what this guy was doing in Israel. How many knows that? I mean, you may not understand that because we live in America. But Mattahias obeyed the Bible, and it was a capital punishment, and he was the high, he was a priest of some kind, and killed him on the spot. Well, this started a war. The Maccabees, the name Maccabee, is, it means hammer in Hebrew. And it was a group of warrior priests that rallied for war and God gave them a victory though they were very small in number. Think about this for a minute. Priests that never had any military training. All of a sudden they're coming together. They're trusting God to help them and they fought the Syrian army which was one of the most powerful military forces on the earth at that time. In a three year bloody war like guerrilla warfare they pushed them back. They ended up defeating them and they ended up reclaiming the temple. I'm, I'm not sure that any of us can really truly appreciate how much of a miracle that really was. It was a lot like Gideon and his 300 men defeating hundreds of thousands. They were vastly outnumbered. But yet they won. And the Bible talks about in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 34, it talks about God giving Israel a little help. Bible scholars think that that little help was the little group of Maccabees that wouldn't give up. And after the death of the father, Metahias, his son Judah took charge. And as I said, in a three-year bloody war, they pushed back the king and his army, which was a supernatural victory. Then they proceeded to rededicate the temple. So this is what I wanted to get to in this story tonight. I asked the Lord to give me a word, and I felt it had to do with consecrating the temple. So after they push back the army, how many knows that sometimes we've got to go to war and we've got to be persistent until we get the devil driven out? Amen. And they drove the enemy completely out. And after they pushed him out, then they entered the house of God. And they looked at it and they saw that bronze altar had been defiled, that idol and everything else. They, they went in there with the zeal of God and they tore down that idol and got it out of there. And they took the old bronze altar out and they built a new one and they began to consecrate God's temple again. And as they consecrated it, they found that there was one little vial of oil that had been, it had to be the first pressing of the olive. It had to be consecrated and they only found one, but they decided they'd go ahead and light the menorah. And now this was in a scroll that told this story and it was a miracle. And so as that oil that should have only lasted for one day, that oil supernaturally burned for eight days. Now think about that for a minute. Let's just put it in terms that we can relate to. As we have some candles over there. So let's just say we lit that and it's supposed to burn for what, like an hour or something. What if we came back a week later and the thing was still burning? And so God did this as a miracle to give them encouragement during this time that I am still with you. And so that's why to this day, excuse me, there's uh, 
the, the Hanukkah, which is the menorah for Hanukkah, has eight branches, but it has a ninth. That's the shamas. That's the one you draw the fire from. And it's each night you light an additional candle. So the first night is obviously the shamas in one. But at the end of Hanukkah, all eight are lit. And so it increases in brightness as it goes. And also, to this day, they'll put it by the windows so that you can see it from the outside. And it's meant to dispel the darkness. As Christians, I believe, in my opinion, this is an extremely powerful time to remember because we obviously would not have Christmas around this time of the year if there wasn't a Hanukkah. I really believe that that was Satan's intent in this whole battle was to destroy Israel and completely just make it another Greek city, if you will, a Greek area, and to turn the temple of God into some pagan temple to Zeus. Satan was trying to snuff out. He was trying to stop that coming of Jesus. So here's some things I want to share for you and I tonight because I want us to pray about consecrating our temple. A couple times a year, this is something God put on my heart as a pastor. I'm not saying people have to do it, and, but we do, and I feel led to do it. But twice a year, we have a time where we pray and fast as a church for, you know, a couple weeks. And during that time, I just tell people to fast what God lays on your heart, not that you don't necessarily eat the whole time, but you may fast from morning to evening or something. But people fast during this time, and and the fast is this. God, show me if there's anything in me that's not right. And that God really purify us. And of course, I always encourage people, I make a list of things we're believing for to pray over those. But at the end of the fast, we come together. And there's three different ways that God consecrated priests unto him in Exodus chapter 29. and, And there's allusions to it in the New Testament. But... The first thing is that there had to be the shedding of blood. How many knows there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood? And so after we go through a period of fasting, we'll come together and we take communion together in a special way. And we're asking that the blood of Jesus really cleanse us. And then, of course, we anoint everybody with oil and pray over them. And that was also there. They had to be anointed with oil. And after church, I say, if you want to come, it's optional. You can come. We're going to water immerse anybody that wants to consecrate their life. Most people come. But those deep consecration services are powerful, aren't they? How many have remember those? I've seen people in those services that have been delivered from things. I have seen people physically healed of things. I have seen people different on the other side of it. That God did something to purge. See, we're the living, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit. And God is wanting through the blood of Jesus. There's something about anointing with oil. And there's something powerful about the waters of immersion. But God is wanting to cleanse us. And after we go through that period of fasting and people repenting and we consecrate our lives, I've noticed as we come back after that to worship that it feels really clean and free in the church. There's something about that. And let me just read what I have here. The king of Epiphanes was trying to force God's people to become like the sinful world around them. I'm concerned about it because I see that today a lot more so than when I was growing up. When I was growing up, whether somebody was Baptist or Pentecostal, there were things that just simply were not accepted in the church world that now are accepted. 
There would have never been a time that all these things, all the worldliness that's going on, they would have just simply not been accepted. I'm telling you. But he wanted them to assimilate into the evil world's idolatrous system of the day. Now today for us as followers of Christ, there should be a huge difference in our lives compared to the sinful world around us. We should stick out like stars in the night sky. People should take note of us that we talk different. We look different. We act different. There's something about them that's different. And people should see that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. There is a time to honestly, this is a time rather, to honestly examine ourselves before the Lord. Just like Epiphanes. He was a picture and type of the coming Antichrist. Look, there's something of like an Antichrist spirit that's been unleashed in these latter days that is trying so desperately to stop the coming of the Lord. And just like has always been there. If, if the enemy can, can try this, it's not going to work, but defile God's people, defile God's house, that he's try. do you understand that he's trying to slow down and stop the coming of Jesus Christ? It's not going to work, but that's the intent. He knows that Jesus is coming for a bride without spot or blemish. So let me give you a few things that we need to think about. Number one, this is a time for rededicating our lives unto the Lord and deeply consecrating ourselves. Consecrate your home. Let God begin to deal with things in you. As you say, just like the Maccabees, when they came back into the temple, they had to remove any idols, they had to reconsecrate. Think about, is there anything in my life that is not right. Is there a time in my life that I was closer to Jesus? Are there things that maybe I'm, I've allowed in my life now that years ago I wouldn't have allowed, but something has happened to kind of take me away from the Lord, and I'm allowing some things now that I used to not? Think about it. This is a time for us to say, Lord, we repent. Bring me back to my first love. I want to rededicate my life. I want to consecrate my life unto you purify my life and so number two seek the lord for major breakthroughs in warfare are there stubborn situations that need to change just like in the days of the maccabees how in the world then a group of priests that had no military training defeat one of the most powerful armies it reminds me of like for example when moses brought israel out of egypt those those people had no warfare training i don't even know how they got weapons but yet they would defeat the militaries around them i think about gideon as i've mentioned many times tonight that with 300 men defeated hundreds of thousands hezekiah we can see all through the scriptures what about king david he saw victories he shouldn't have seen why? Because God was with them. God is the one, just like Joshua taking the land of Canaan. It was, for example, Jericho. That was an impossible victory. But yet God brought down the walls and defeated them before Joshua. Listen, God is the God of major breakthroughs. He's the one that delights in taking the head off the giant in front of you. Amen? And giving you victory. All right, number three. Seek the Lord for a fresh anointing and a fresh revival in your life. The Lord is coming, as Matthew 25 says, for wise virgins with extra oil. And Hanukkah speaks of supernatural oil. 
So I would say tonight, ask the Lord for a fresh anointing, a fresh baptism in His fire that you'll burn for Him like you never have. Number four, like the lit menorah, we're called to be a light in this world. Ask the Lord to help you to be a light in darkness. The middle candle, and I talk a lot about this with even the seven branch, but the middle candle, the middle piece is Jesus. He's a vine, we're the branches, we're in Him. But it's from that middle one called the shamas, it's the servant candle, from that the fire is drawn to others. And that speaks so clearly of Jesus. Jesus comes to be the one that baptizes us in the Holy Ghost and with fire. We need His baptism of fire. Number five, just like the Maccabees had to do, and Elijah had to do on Mount Carmel, we need to rebuild the altar of the Lord. Remember the Maccabees had to go in there, that bronze altar had been defiled, they had to rebuild it. Let me ask you, how's your prayer life? How's your Bible study? This is the time to evaluate. Have I spent more time with the Lord, quality time in the past, and I've drifted from it? We need to rebuild the altar of prayer and getting in the Word on a personal level. Number six, this is the time of tipping the scales of justice. The Lord promised that if an evil judge would give a persistent widow justice, how much more would our Heavenly Father give justice to His children? Over this last year, we've sown much into the kingdom, but has the enemy tried to steal anything from you? Let's believe God for justice. For the Bible says that a thief is caught, he must restore sevenfold. And then finally, it's customary to read Psalm 30 and a poem that I'm going to close by reading it called uh, Mazor, which means like a, a fortress and rock. So, this is a poem that's read at this time of the year. It's interesting because I think that it's almost prophetic. It almost is like reading a psalm out of the Bible. But this is this poem. I don't know who wrote it, but it says, Rock and fortress of my salvation, to you it is fitting to give praise. May the house of my prayer be built, and there, and there will bring an offering of thanks when you prepare a place of slaughter for the blaspheming enemy. Then I will lift my voice in a song of dedication to the, uh, of the altar. But then he goes through time. The first thing that's read is this. My soul was saturated with tribulations. My strength was sapped with sadness. My life was embittered with difficulty. The enslavement of the kingdom of the calf. And he talks about going back in the days of Moses with Egypt as they were slaves. But with God's great hand, he extricated the beloved treasured nation. The army of Pharaoh Drowned in the depths of the sea. Isn't that awesome? So we're remembering the wonders of the Lord. The second thing that was mentioned. He brought me to the sanctuary of his holiness. But there too I had no rest. The oppressor talking about Nebuchadnezzar came and exiled me. For I had worshipped foreign gods. And poisonous wine of sin I did taste. I barely left my land when the end of the Babylonian exile came. But look at this. With Zerubbabel and at the end of the seven years I was emancipated. In other words, God, they were remembering here how God delivered them out of exile in the days of Zerubbabel. And then a story I think all of you are familiar with, cut down the towering cypress of Mordecai. The Agagite, the son of Hamdada, Haman, how many remember Haman? But it has become an entrapment for him. His arrogance was silence. You raised the head of Mordecai and the enemy, his name you erased. 
His many sons, his possessions, you hanged on a tree. So we remember Purim here. As Haman sought to slaughter uh, the Jews, he ended up being hanged on his own gallows. And now moving forward in time, the Syrian Greeks gathered upon me the story of Hanukkah here in the days of the Hasmoneans, that's the Maccabees. They broke through the walls of my towers, defiled all the oils of the temple, but from the remnant of flask, a miracle was wrought for the roses Israel. The men of wisdom instituted eight days of song and praise as we remember the miracle that God did during this time. I think what Christians need to realize is that our God did a great miracle among his people. This story is not insignificant. And so the last one is this in, in the poem. Unleash your holy arm and bring near the final salvation. Could this be prophetic of the end? See, it goes through what? Egypt and then Babylon. And it goes into the days of the Maccabees. Now it's talking about something in the future. Could this be the Antichrist system? It says this, unleash your holy arm, O God, and bring near the final salvation. Avenge your servants from the evil nation, for it's been too long already. There's no end to the days of evil. And it says, repel the red one, the descendants of Edom. That's interesting. Which seems to speak of like the Palestinians around Israel. And raise up the seven shepherds. And this seems to speak of the coming Messiah in his righteous ones. And so every year this is this poem's read, and it makes me wonder about how we saw with ancient Nimrod, and now we read here about the days of Epiphanes that he put this idol in the temple. He defiled the temple. In a sense, it was at that time an abomination that caused widespread desolation. But it's speaking of what's to come. Just like Antiochus the fourth we see that there's coming an Antichrist. Y'all hear me tonight because this is how I want to close this. This is important. There's coming, just like Antiochus, there's coming an Antichrist. And the Bible says he's going to create this idol and he's going to put it where? In the temple. And then he's going to sit there in the temple declaring himself to be God Almighty and he's going to demand Israel to worship him as God in his image. And of course, by and large, they won't. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some that will, but most of them won't. And because they refuse to bow down and worship him as God, he's going to unleash his military. So it's an abomination what he's doing that's going to cause, again, widespread desolation. Because he's going to release his military that's going to slaughter, the Bible says, two-thirds of the Jews. And the only reason a third survives is because, because God supernaturally protects them. Probably in Petra, which is now in Jordan. But God is going to, once again, this this story seems like it's going to be revived again. But Jesus, this time, Jesus himself will come. He will split the eastern sky. He's going to send Michael. And Michael is going to grab the Antichrist and the false prophet alive and throw them in the lake of fire. Jesus is going to slaughter all the military forces around Israel with the breath of his mouth. He's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. He's going to walk into Jerusalem and sit on the throne of David. He's going to separate the sheep and goat nations and he's going to reign for a thousand years out of Israel. That's what he's talking about, the coming of the great shepherd. He's coming. 
But before he comes, there's going to be this Antichrist. And I believe we're living at a time where this is actually really close. For you and I, though, that, what I'm referring to is the nation of Israel. They're going to have to deal with the abomination causing desolation. But you and I are living in what the Bible calls perilous times, the beginning of sorrows. Where all these things, are, it's like the, the world is being shaken. And Jesus is about to rapture a remnant bride, I'm telling you. But we're going to have to be ready. When the Lord comes, He's not coming for just anybody. He's coming for a bride that without spot or blemish. He's coming for a group of people that is walking with Him like Enoch did. He's looking for a people with extra oil. What's the extra oil? It's the Holy Spirit in our lives filling us to overflowing. It comes out of an intimacy with God. And that's why I'm convinced that revival in these last days is essential. Churches where God's presence dwelled is desperately needed. People are hungry and people need a move of God. We're living in difficult times. How many are thankful for God's presence? This is what I want to do. I'm done with the sermon. I want to pray for people tonight, but hear what I'm saying. I want to pray that God fill you with extra oil and like a fresh baptism in his fire. That's going to begin in your life and begin to to stir up and shake out of you everything that needs to go. How many are sincere in your faith enough? Just be honest with God. Don't, Don't raise your hand or anything like that. How many are sincere in your walk with God enough to say, God, don't hold back. Lay me down on the altar and burn out of me everything that needs to go. Everything not like you. Everything of the world. Everything of the flesh. Everything of the devil. I don't want anything in my life but except what is of you. That's a bride without spot or blemish. And that's why I'm going to pray tonight. That that type of fire come. I believe that that's what God by his incredible grace and mercy. Because I had all kinds of problems. All kinds of struggles just like every other Christian. But back in the 90's revivals there was a fire that baptized me. That is still in my life and it totally changed me. It has stayed with me all these years. And that fire has been what's kept me from all these other things. How many knows that that fire of God in us burning bright? You know, Steve Hill used to say, stay around a roaring fire because it'll keep the wolves away. That fire is going to keep us in these last days, I'm telling you. Because there's so many other things trying to pull us away from God and distract us and and pull us in all these different directions. And we're going to see people that call themselves Christians that aren't any more Christian than than the world. I mean, they're fake. They're tares among the wheat. We're going to see people fall away from the faith. We're going to see all these things. But at the end of the day, are you going to be like like Mattahias that says, I don't care what you do or anybody else out here does. As for me and my house, we're not going to turn to the right or the left. We're going to serve the Lord and be faithful even unto death. There's got to be a fire of God in us that gives us that grace. So, Lord, I thank you tonight. I thank you for hearing and answering the prayers over this time. That here in a minute, I'm going to pray for people. And when we do, Lord, I thank you for a fresh oil and a fresh baptism in the Holy Ghost and with fire in Jesus' name. Lord, that we will never be the same. That this fire will be ignited in us. Even though it may come almost like in a seed form, it may be something that's not really noticed as much as what you would think at first. But Lord, let that fire grow and increase and stay with us and begin to burn out everything that needs to go that we will never be the same in Jesus' name. Let it come.